0: Good morning, everyone. Yeah, it's wonderful to see you all. Welcome uh, to Park Hill Church. Like Aaliyah said, my name's Evan. If you're new to church, I won't make you raise your hand or anything like that, but I just want to welcome you if you're new. My wife, Sandy, and I have the honor uh, and challenge and joy of leading this church together. So we're over halfway through this series now, guys. A series called God Breathed, which is all about relearning how to read and trust this ancient library of texts <laughs> called the Bible and, and what the Bible means for life in 2023, San Diego. Uh, so remember, the, the Old Testament. How many of you have heard of the Old Testament? Half, half of the Christian church has heard of the Old Testament. That's good. So, so uh, the Old Testament, did you, little known, this is lesser known, the Old Testament was the, the Bible Jesus read. Uh, the Old Testament was his Bible that formed his worldview. And uh, that's crazy to think about, right? Like Jesus trusted his Bible with his whole life, and then he entrusted his apostles to go write the New Testament. it 's is amazing to think about. After Jesus rose from the dead and left the world to sit at the Father's right hand, uh, the, the, the church then carried forward the way of Jesus. And so for almost 2,000 years since then, Followers of Jesus have been empowered by the Spirit to read this thing in community and to know God through this, this thing called the Bible and to know ourselves best. We know ourselves best through this, through this Bible. And, and we know the difference between good and evil because we take God's definition instead of our own definitions of what's good and what's beautiful and, and what's evil and untrue. So we get our worldview from the Bible. And so we read it. And we don't read it privately We don't read it in isolation only, but in community, both with the living and dead church. You guys, we read the Bible in communion with the dead church. I mean, literal dead people who read it before us and read it well, and we actually have their paper trail for 2,000 years. We read in community because the communion of saints is not even separated by death because we're the community of resurrection. And so we do this, and as we read, as we read in community, uh, we know the mind of Christ. We get to know the mind of Christ as we become more and more this diverse family of believers all over the world. And so it's incredible what we get to be a part of. In a very real sense, these scriptures that we just passed out, the Bibles we just passed out to you, you raise your hand, we pass you a Bible. It's such a normal Sunday morning thing, but you're then receiving in your hand this this. this Library that is central to the life of the spiritual family of God. It's wild what we get to do. So, and we realize this raises questions. Today is a day about, about questions. Today is a day about questions, some of which we've already addressed in the series, like where did the Bible really come from? We hit that in the beginning. Or how do we trust the Bible in hard times? And meanwhile, how do we, what do we do with our questions? And this is what we're talking about today. And we're also in this series talking about how can we know how to interpret such an old book in a way that's useful for life today? Or how come there's so many different interpretations of all the different verses? And when there's a disagreement between different interpretations, who wins? And who says who wins? And what about all the really ugly parts of the Bible, bloody, bizarre, sexually violent, confusing parts? If the whole Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus, how do the ugly parts lead me to Jesus? These are just a few of the questions that we've raised and we're trying to address. And like Aliyah said, most of those really gritty questions at the end, they're gonna be addressed in the forthcoming podcast interviews I'll be doing with theologians, Bible scholars, and, and like to name a few. Dan Kimball, author of How Not to Read the Bible, he's one of them. Uh, and then Preston Sprinkle just agreed to be on the interview podcast, New Testament Scholar. And then John Mark Comer is gonna be on the podcast, Brian Laritz who did our Black History Month last February, House of Learning, he's going to come on the podcast and, and start answering questions. Feel free to email in. If there's like this pressing question that you've had, um, email in some of these and we'll kind of go through them and see what would be most helpful for our whole church. So, so, because here's why. We are this diverse, massive, global family that submits to the authority and goodness of a God who personally became human to rescue us and then make us his family, we belong to each other and we belong to God. And at the center of our life is this thing called the scriptures that shows us God and how to live. So we want to read it well and trust it with our lives, even when life doesn't make sense. When circumstances are very difficult, we choose to trust what God says about himself and us in this book. Even when our personal desires are screaming at us in moments of temptation, we choose to trust and submit to God's definition of what's good. Believing Jesus, this is why, we believe Jesus knows how to be a human better than any of us. And his authority and healing presence comes to us through this book. That's how we come to the Bible because this is how Jesus came to the Bible. And so with the help of the Holy Spirit, we follow Jesus in this way which is why we're looking at a story in the Gospel of Matthew. We didn't read it, notice we didn't do a scripture reading because we're gonna walk through it verse by verse today to let it wash over our imaginations. It's the story in Matthew four, turn to Matthew four, the story of Jesus' wilderness temptation. There's so much here. This story is a treasure trove of how Jesus sees the Bible. So Jesus tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Can we pray before we read? Open to Matthew 4 and let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you come now? Show us the Father's heart and how Jesus trusted the scriptures that the Father's heart is good. May we learn to same, may we learn to live in the same trust today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, I love, it's one of those big Bible understatements, right? Like after no food, 40 days, uh, it just says, and he was hungry. Uh, So 40 days and 40 nights, does that sound familiar? In the Bible, the number 40 is always referring to a time of testing. Do you know this? Remember, how long did it rain on the earth in Noah's flood story? Forty days and forty nights. It's like this colloquial Jewish thing, like 40 days and 40 nights, which is still just 40 days. But uh, 40 days and 40 nights means time of testing. And how many years does Israel wander in the desert? Forty years, about 40. How long is Israel in Egypt, in slavery? 400, which is a multiplication of 40, this is really testing times 10, is the point. 40 is always a time of testing. With that in mind, let's read more of the story. So after 40 days, verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice how the tempter's first two tests come to Jesus. They start with the word, if. If you're the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, what? Throw yourself down, he says. In a way, if you were to zoom out and look at this story, just look at the meta- Bible context here, the broader story of the Bible, you would very quickly see that this is one of the many times in the story of the Bible where the serpent, or the Satan, he's directly connected to an act of self-harm or suicide, jump. When Jesus casts out the demons from the man who lived among the tombs, you know that story, where do the demons go? Jesus casts out the demons from the man, where do the demons go? Into pigs, and where do the pigs go? They jump and kill themselves. What happens to Judas after Satan enters him and Judas betrays Jesus? He jumps, kills himself. And what does the serpent say here? If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. So I just want to say, I would contend that at any point when a human being is experiencing intrusive thoughts, or moments of wanting to self-harm, that is never the voice of God. Ever. I want to say this. I want to point this out in the text. It feels like a very heavy aside, but in church, we need to be reminded of these things. So, so keep hearing Jesus' testing now. The serpent's continuing to hammer Jesus right now. He continues, verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. What does Jesus say? Does he say, you don't really have the power to give me the kingdoms? Does Jesus say that? No. Jesus doesn't challenge Satan's claim to hold the power over all governments. Most likely, Satan had some truth to that. Satan is the principality and the power of the air behind human governments in some way that Jesus did not deny. So Jesus doesn't say, no, I call bluff. Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Okay, we're going to dig through this story a little bit more towards the end of this sermon, but I just want to make some observations now. A lot of Christians, when they read this story, they see it as a kind of a, a manual on how to defeat Satan. And yes, you can learn some really good stuff here. There's some great stuff here about how to stand strong against the power of evil, but in reality, this is not a story about how humans can stand up against Satan, It's more a story about how humanity could not stand up to Satan and how only one person can, and his name is Jesus. So this isn't primarily a how-to. This is primarily an invitation to see Jesus as the second Adam who could do something that the first Adam could never do. Do you understand this? You guys, even after 40 days of hunger, Jesus is stronger than humanity in a garden with all the food they ever wanted. This is an invitation to see the power of Jesus first, the power of Jesus. And so what I want to do today is to see this story as an invitation to read and trust the Bible the way Jesus read and trusted it. That's really what this whole series is about. If you've been here for five weeks straight, by this point, you're like, this sounds a little redundant. That is intentional. Over and over, you guys, we've been coming at this question, how Jesus followers should think about the Bible. And if you're like, hey, Evan and and David and others, they keep hitting the same themes. That's on purpose. That means you're getting the point. Jesus followers trust the Bible because Jesus followers trust Jesus. And if Jesus trusted the Bible with his whole life, even in moments of intrusive thoughts, even in moments, throw yourself off the building. even in moments of intense hunger and longing and desire. If Jesus trusted the Bible then, then that's exactly what we are committed to do as Jesus followers. So this is the invitation. Read and trust the Bible exactly like Jesus did. Because when we see how Jesus did, it has the power to transform us. By the power of the Spirit, we can follow Jesus in this way. Even when we're surrounded by questions, even when we don't see two feet in front of our face, spiritually speaking. So before we let the story really sink in, I want to talk about questions, because we're in a cultural moment right now where there's a lot of questions, and we don't want to get so caught up in our church bubble that we forget that there's a reality for many, many others around us all the time that's different than ours. So the reality is we live in a moment when the Bible is under a huge amount of, of pressure, and challenge and pushback, people just have tons of questions about God and Bible and faith and how it all works with real life. And the reality is people have questions about the Bible and Christianity, and and some are good faith questions, honest questions, and others are less honest. As a pastor, I get all kinds of questions, like humble ones, seemingly less humble ones, curious questions loaded questions. Through this series on the Bible, I've got texts from tons of folks in the several, I won't say tons, don't exaggerate, several folks in the church just with really intense questions. I'm like, I wonder what the story is behind that one. Because so we, we live in a moment where we probably have more questions than we even know how to emotionally handle right now because we see so much information. So in the Wickham house, we love Questions. If you've ever been to a Park Hill Basics class, it's no questions off limits, honest, doubt, welcome. And that culture really flows from like the way Sandy and I run our dinner table. Like it's just questions, questions all the time. Nothing off limits. Uh, Because those of you who either have kids or have kids in your community, you know that if the questions aren't happening at your dinner table or late night couch time, then they're absolutely happening on YouTube or wherever else. You know this. We will get our questions answered one way or another. And, and our kids will. But those of you who are parents, you know that one of the most important things as a parent is not that you have all the answers. Because if you pretend you do, they'll sniff out that in a second. The most important thing is not that you have all the answers for kids. The most important thing as a parent is that their kids bring their questions to you. That that's the, the MO, the mode of operation in your world. There's so many questions in our moment in time. At our last house of learning in September, uh, our house of learning on marriage and sexuality, LGBTQ, we were only able to get to like eight or nine questions in the live Q&A. There were six, I counted, 67 really great questions. We couldn't even move to the visible side. They were stacking up so much. We have questions, with the election cycle ramping up, there's questions I get about Christian nationalism and politics and military violence. And over the last three years, so many questions about race and religion, money, marijuana. I wish I had five bucks for every marijuana question I've got. You name it, I've probably been asked it as a pastor. Jesus asked lots of questions. There's this guy named Conrad Gempf. He's a New Testament lecturer at the London School of Theology. He wrote this little book called Jesus Asked. Jesus Asked. Where he counts up all the questions Jesus asks in the Gospels. You know how many questions Jesus asked? Something like 307 Jesus question marks are in the Gospels. And and Conrad Gempf also counted all the questions people ask Jesus. 187 questions people ask Jesus. So out of all 187 questions people ask Jesus, how many of those questions do you think Jesus directly answers? Any guesses? You're right that you can hold them, you can hold it up with one hand. 187 questions people ask Jesus, Jesus directly answers three, if not two. It's a debate, if it's two or three. why? One of the reasons to be truthful, most often when people ask Jesus questions, they're not asking because they want an answer, they're really just trying to trap Jesus. It's really hard to give a good answer to a bad question, and Jesus knew that. One of the classic Jesus moves in the Gospels is when someone asks Jesus a question, he just has a question right back. That's like, that's like 180 times he does that. Classic Jesus. Jesus. And we have so many questions. So one of my dear friends, AJ Swoboda, who preached here last year, and AJ's come back to preach during Advent this year, very excited about that uh, in December. I love listening to AJ just think out loud. He's a professor, brilliant, he's written like 10 books about all the best questions you can think of. He has a new book coming out next, next year, in the first half of the year on desire, and the title of the book I think is called The Gift of Thorns all about desire. It's going to be so, I have the manuscript reading through it. I love hearing AJ just think out loud about things. Once he was pondering, he's like, what do you think our first words will be when we get to heaven? Like we, we enter the presence of God, whether we die or, the new, or we are resurrected on the spot or the new heavens and the new earth c- comes, whatever. First conscious communication in the next Phase of life with God in eternity. Whatever that is, what do you think we'll say? And here's what he just imagined. Our first words when we enter God's presence and we we consciously step into the reality of God's presence. Our first word, he goes, it's going to be, oh. (laughs) Because at that moment, we will see everything as it is. And until then, we just won't. We just won't. We don't see things perfectly right now, so we have our theology, right? And we have Q&A podcasts where we explore things. But when that day comes, when we see God as he is, it will be all clear. You guys, right now we have theology, but then we will have God. Madeleine Lengel, speaking about marriage, she said that famous line, it takes a lifetime to learn someone. And that applies not just to marriage, but to any lifelong committed friendship. It especially relates to our lifelong relationship with the living God. It takes a lifetime to learn God in relationship. To work through our comforts and discomforts with God and how he communicates and learning to understand and live into his good intentions for our lives, trusting he always has my best interests. And that right there, what I just said, trusting that God has your best interests, even when you don't have answers, that is a huge difference between our relationship with God and our relationship with anyone else. It's impossible to overstate this. This is so important. God is the only person whose intentions you never, ever have to doubt. You can question the goodness of your spouse's intentions or the goodness of your friend's intentions, and you will do these things. And certainly we question the intentions of our enemies, right? You're foolish if you don't. And then your trust in spouse, friends, enemies is directly tied to how good you think those intentions are. So you need to use discernment. Listen, this is something you never have to do with God. We do not have to question the goodness of his intentions. If you're new to faith or you're exploring Christianity, you're not a Christian in this room, welcome. Did you know that God is the only person whose intentions you never have to doubt? There's security and identity and loved, there's so much safety in God. We can join Jesus in that same trust. This is the trust Jesus has in the wilderness. We're about to see it in the desert when he's hungry, intrusive thoughts, Satan speaking, Jesus doesn't waver in, he wavers in almost, he's starving, and yet he doesn't waver in trusting God's intentions for him. And listen, this doesn't mean your questions go away. This might make more questions come. But it does mean, listen, you know exactly who you can bring your questions to. They won't go away, but you know where to bring them. You always know where to bring them. So you and I are free to bring our most painful, dark doubts, questions to this God revealed in Jesus Christ. And we can be confident he'll never shame you for bringing him his questions. He'll never be surprised or dismissive of you. Ever. He doesn't promise answers, but he promises you security to bring your full emotions and anger and joy to him as his loved child, in every circumstance you can imagine. And we know this. How do we know this? Because this is what we see Jesus do now. In hunger, isolation in the face of Satan, he trusts that the Father's intentions are good. So so this is what we're looking at today. The wilderness temptation story, Jesus shows he's committed to the Scriptures. And he shows this trust every time Satan tempts. Satan tempts three times And each time Jesus says, hey, it's written, it's written, it's written, I trust, I trust, I trust. So let's briefly look at each one, and then we'll come to the table in that same spirit of trust. So here's Satan's first test, you ready? In his first temptation, Jesus trusts that God's word is sufficient. And here's the text, Matthew four, three through four. Satan says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And then Jesus answered, It is written, that's scripture, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the devil literally tempts Jesus with physical bread for his starving flesh. Yes, Satan uses carbs to tempt Jesus. I think he still uses carbs and it's a nasty trick. Uh, so, So Jesus is tempted by the bread. He's starving literally. And so here's a powerful statement Powerful statement from Jesus. He's like, God's word is sufficient. God's written word is enough. It's enough. I have my stomach streaming at me to fulfill my desires. God's word is enough. The bread from the devil won't fully satisfy me, Jesus says. Jesus is telling the tempter, God's word is enough for me. You can eat this book, Park Hill. You can eat this book, and it will satisfy your longings in a deep way. It will satisfy your flesh in a deep way, deeper than the momentary cravings even. There's this other really weird story in Matthew 22 where the Sadducees, they come, they're this group of religious Jews just like Pharisees, except where Pharisees love traditions and interpretations of every text, Sadducees just deny the resurrection, Sadducees took the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Math, uh, Not that's the Old Testament, first five books, of the, that's New Testament, Old Testament, sorry, I'm, I'm, my brain is doing somersaults, first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that was the Sadducees' Bible, they rejected as authoritative the rest of the Old Testament, so they were like purists on the first five books, and so they denied like miraculous and resurrection stuff, no one rises from the dead, you just die, you just go to nothing, kind of like... Uh, almost like atheism. And so, uh, so the Sadducees, they, they come to Jesus and they ask this bizarre question. They're like, hey, Jesus, if a woman has a husband who dies and she marries his brother, which was a custom, so that you can carry on the lineage, and he dies, and this goes on and on until all the brothers die, whose wife will she be in the resurrection, Jesus? And, and so fun fact, remember, the Sadducees. They don't believe in a resurrection. So question, was their question about marriage in the resurrection honest? Was that an honest question? That's, this is where I'm getting. No, they already deny the resurrection in the first place. They're just trying to be clever with Jesus. They're trying to trap him. And so Jesus answers like this. Here's, here's a question. He answers with a question. Are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? So that's a bummer if Jesus answers you that way. Just letting you know. <laughs> Jesus answers you that way, you're sad, okay? You come to him with this clever thing that you thought up with your little tribe, and, and he's like, don't you know you're wrong? Don't you know you're already wrong? <laughs> like, and, and why are they wrong? Because he's telling him, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. You haven't gone to the scriptures as enough for you. You haven't gone to the scriptures as sufficient, which means you don't know God's power, sorry. You're not even in the know. I wonder how many times in our lives when we've been in error and our hearts feel less than full. Maybe you're here right now, your soul is lean. I wonder how often it's because like the Sadducees, we don't know the scriptures. We don't know the presence of God. We don't know his power. We think we have these layers and layers of impossible questions but really we just don't know the we don't know the power of God in the scriptures. And that might be listen the room is diverse here it might be because you haven't read the bible or maybe because you're driven by an experience you had or maybe you overvalue your own intellect which is where I tend to be tempted Sometimes we're like the Sadducees, we pick and choose what parts of the Bible we wanna live under and there's so many ways we see life distorted because of that. And eternity distorted and God's purposes for our lives distorted from our perspective. And sexuality distorted and our relationships distorted because we don't know the scriptures and we haven't experienced the power of God. To use Madeline Lengel's phrase again, We live our lives learning God in relationship with him, but instead we try to, we're supposed to do that, but instead we try to trap him with our own intellect. We don't submit ourselves to his goodness and authority because we haven't chosen to trust that he really does have my best interests. He really does. With every word he speaks, he's speaking for my best interests, even when I think my best interests are something else. We don't believe that so we don't trust his words. But my friends, the scriptures are enough. Jesus' first wilderness temptation says, tells us, that Jesus believed against his stomach screaming for his desires to be fulfilled, that the scriptures were enough. So that was the first temptation. In his second temptation, uh, in his second temptation, Jesus shows us that God's word is coherent. So the first one is sufficient. Second one, God's word's coherent. And here's the text, the devil took him up to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and they'll lift up your hands so you won't strike your foot against a stone. So Satan is quoting Psalm 91 here. Now, that means Satan knows, he he, he at least knows what the Bible says, right? But Jesus knows what the Bible means, (laughs) So Jesus knows the scriptures. Satan uses Psalm 91 against Jesus. Jesus knows the scriptures. And Jesus knows that Psalm 91 doesn't mean that. And this is a key point, you guys. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, yeah, 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 you can quote the scriptures to me, but that doesn't mean it means that. That's a huge lesson. implication. For, for who Jesus is as an interpreter of Scripture. As a teacher, Jesus is a rabbi. He's our rabbi. He tells us how to read it. He's, he's our authority on how we should quote the Scriptures. And, and, um, and he's also authority on how we sometimes misuse the Scriptures. He shows us how we misuse the Bible. So Jesus quotes the Bible back to Satan, and he says, well, Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So what Jesus does here is he uses that passage from Deuteronomy 6 as if to say, no, no, no. Hey, Satan, there's a tone in Deuteronomy 6, in that scripture, there's a tone that lets you see Psalm 91 correctly. And Satan, you're not taking Psalm 91 correctly the way it's supposed to mean, because We have Deuteronomy 6 over here that says you can't put your Lord, your God, to the test. So you can't use Psalm 91 to put your Lord, your God, to the test. Do you understand me, Satan? This is very interesting. There are times when what you read in the Bible seems to contradict another part. There are times when no easy answers seem to work. And taking the Bible seriously means embracing its tension and complexity. Notice Jesus doesn't say, forget about Psalm 91, right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, Satan, that verse can't be trusted. Jesus doesn't say that. If he did say that, he'd be saying, God really won't protect me. But Jesus doesn't say that because Psalm 91 is about God protecting his kids. So Jesus is saying we need to hold these two scriptures together Yes, God protects us, Psalm 91, but I'm also not supposed to jump off a cliff. Hold them in tension. The scriptures can be held in tension because they're coherent. The scriptures are coherent. What we call contradictions on the surface and what a lot of antagonists of the Bible like to point out as contradictions are really spaces where there is a tense coherence, where Jesus is revealing himself in a complex and profound way, as long as we trust that God's intentions are always good. That's the foundation stone. The scriptures are trustworthy. Remember, Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the scriptures. I came to fulfill all of them, every little letter, every character on your document, every character Jesus came to fulfill. Jesus has this high view of the Bible, as high as it gets, and he believes all the Bible's tensions can be held together coherently as they point to Himself. So that's the second thing we learn from this temptation of Jesus. Here's the third. In His third temptation, Jesus shows us God's Word is authoritative. So it's sufficient, it's coherent, and it's authority. And here's the text for this one. Here's the, the end of the story. Again, the devil took Him to a very high mountain, showed Him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, All this I'll give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Acknowledge my authority, Satan says. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. When Satan asks Jesus to worship him, Jesus says, I'm not going to worship you. I'm going to worship God and serve him alone. And in this moment, we see Jesus, the God-man, placing himself under the authority of Scripture. Jesus lived under the authority of Scripture. So Christians, by definition, follow Jesus and live under the full authority of the Scriptures. It's part of what… It's, it's an inherent part of the identity of Christian to live in full submission to the Bible. And, and so… When Jesus reads Deuteronomy here, he's reading Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God, serve him only. He quotes Deuteronomy. Only God is the ultimate authority. That's what Jesus intends to do. Jesus intends to worship God alone. Now, we have to ask, this is the issue, and we come back to this question a lot in this series. Authority, authority, it's a, it's a bad word today in many circles because we have seen so much authority abuse. It's always important to acknowledge that. And at the same time, when we see the good and true authority of God, it just makes Him all the sweeter against the backdrop of all the abuse. So we have to unpack this issue. When it comes to interpreting the Bible, it's ultimately about authority. We're hitting on this in every teaching this series because this is the issue. Where does the Bible get its authority? How does does this book tell us what to do? And the answer, the simplest way to put it, here it is, the Bible gets its authority from God. That's the simplest way to put it. The Bible gets its authority from God. Jesus said it this way, one line at the end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Listen, that doesn't say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to the Bible, doesn't say that it says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me Jesus and so it's always it's it's a brief 30-second word here it's always interesting to me and kind of frustrating but mostly just funny when I go to a church's website and I see their statement of faith and the number one thing they believe in their beliefs is uh, the Bible Like, number one, they put, like, first and foremost, there's some websites I come across, first and foremost, we believe in the Bible. And I'm like, no, you don't. You believe in God. First and foremost, and the Bible gets its authority from God. It's not the other way around. I think, like, so we as followers of Jesus trust, you have that slide, slide 17, maybe? Next one, yeah. We as followers of Jesus trust in the Bible because we trust in Jesus, Not the other way around. We don't trust in Jesus because we trust the Bible. We trust in Jesus, and therefore we trust uh, in the Bible. And that order is key. And you've heard that many times in this series over and over. We trust the Scriptures because Jesus did. Jesus believed the authority of God was good, and it has your best intention in mind, and it exercises through the Bible to you. The authority of God is mediated through the Scriptures to the church over God's kids. And Jesus viewed it was over him, so we follow him in that. In his moments of greatest hunger and isolation, intrusive thoughts and grief. Jesus believed his own life, his whole life submitted to the scriptures And, and dying for sin and rising from the dead. Jesus believed his own life was and is the truth and life that every human heart longs for. And the scriptures are this infallible signpost that reveals the life of Jesus to all of us so so church a big goal my heart for you today is that you'd let the beauty of Jesus overwhelm you as you read and trust the Bible like delight like let the, let his beauty overwhelm you knowing you're reading and trusting in God's best interests for you as you read the text every chapter the ugliest parts of the Bible Beneath it all, God has His best interest for you at at His heart. Remember how Jesus says this in John's Gospel, talking to the Pharisees, like, hey, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You guys, you don't come to the Bible purely to have knowledge. You don't come to the Bible to purely get motivation to be a better person that day. We come to the Bible primarily for union and communion with the living triune God. You you come to the Bible to, to respond to Jesus' invitation, come to me, come to me. So when we're coming to the Bible, we're saying, yes, okay, I'll come to you, Jesus. That's what you're doing when you respond to the Bible well. Coming to Jesus, so as we move into communion right now, we're kind of kind of come to the table, in, in, and and in about four minutes. So yeah, come up, Carter, just start start doing your thing. Whatever, play play that guitar. So as we move into a time of worship, I want the theme of this moment. I'd love to invite you to treat this moment as a, as an opportunity for delight to maybe shift a piece of your thinking if necessary? What would it look like to, to shift towards delight in the authority of Jesus over my life? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Christ the Lord, your savior and your teacher. So Jesus, teach me, I delight in what you might teach me. His authority is coming to you now. Through the bread and the cup, it's about to come into your body. As we've read Scripture and unpacked what it means, His authority has been mediating toward you. He's exercising His authority over your life in partnership with the Holy Spirit in you. If you're a Christian, follower of Jesus, admitting your need of God's forgiveness and healing power because of Christ's death on the cross, giving forgiveness of sins a place in your life. You now admit your need for him, receive forgiveness, become God's child. Now the Holy Spirit is working in you to, to, to make you more and more aware of God's good intentions and more and more delighting in that. And then his own character comes out of you. So not only is authority mediated to you, but then the Spirit moves out of you and bears fruit like Jesus towards other people in your life. And so right now we're saying yes to that love relationship with God. We're saying yes to the union. And I'm inviting you to delight in that right now. These songs that we sing, we're gonna sing a song before we even come to the table just to sit in union with God as a church. If you're not yet a Christian, the invitation for you is to step into the community of Jesus by saying yes to his authority. Admit you need his forgiveness. November 5th, we're baptizing people. First Sunday of the month, baptisms. Be baptized on November 5th, and then start the journey with the community of faith, where you can bring your questions and your doubts and your joy and your intrusive thoughts. You can verbalize them. In the presence of a God who has your best interests. And for all of us, if, you're, if you are Christians, for the rest of us, most, I, probably the vast majority here are in some sense following Jesus. So come to the table where there's forgiveness and power right now. Just like Jesus was tested, just like Jesus was tested. Um, notice, two out of the three temptations were tempting Jesus to doubt his identity. If you really are God's loved son, if you really are God's loved son, twice. If you really are loved by God. Satan wants Jesus, Satan wants you, because he wanted this for Jesus, Satan wants you to doubt the truest thing about you, that you're the loved child of God. I guarantee you that's what Satan's actively working and wanting you to question today. And it's coming to you as a different kind of question. You're, you're, you're questioning your identity, but it really the question you think you have is some other thing. Like, maybe you're like, am I even significant? Does my work matter? And, and, and you try to answer that by comparing yourself to people at work or maybe family members that seem to be making an impact better than you. And so you envy and therefore you're anxious or angry about your significance. Or maybe you're questioning whether you're lovable. Like, I'm not attractive enough, not the right body, not the right bank account, not the right relationships. Or not to be too dark, but you're questioning whether your life is worth living anymore. Again, the enemy could be bringing you the same thing he brought Jesus. Just jump, see if God saves you. Or maybe you're just doubting whether you're secure and safe to open. Like my doubts, my problems are too dark for people. I'll be kicked out or I'll be othered. I'll be too much for someone else. You name it, hear me loud and clear. These are identity questions. If you're a follower of Jesus, then the truest thing about you is that you are a loved child of God who belongs at the table of Jesus's family, period. So the invite for you today is to come into that light. Come into that light. Can we spend this song? Feel free, if you're able, to stand and sing or sit and sing or maybe move into an aisle and just stretch your hands out and be open. Maybe it's simply sitting in your chair with your legs uncrossed, your palms up to increase your breathing and circulation and just be still and just say, God, is that could be You do have your best interest for me in your heart. And just say thank you. So I invite you to delight for these next few minutes together. And then after a song or two, we'll come to the table. So just feel free to be in his presence right now. Holy Spirit, come. I just ask you to come. Speak your love. Speak beloved identity over your children. And anyone who's not yet a follower of Jesus, may they say yes to becoming your child. Come now, Lord. Speak, Lord. I don't know. What was, just with our eyes closed, I just want just to name something. Most of the time I don't feel this way, but sometimes I feel when I, when I preach or when I finish preaching, sometimes I feel that I just... Finish a sermon and it just ends and we and it's great. It's it's what it needs to be. But other times I feel that there are specific, specific ways that the Spirit is, is loving you and loving individuals in the room and drawing you into his trust. And so during this song, there's gonna be people up front, pastors, community leaders, trusted prayer leaders who would love to just hold your prayer with you. They'd love for you to come forward and pray for you about specific things I just said. I really, I don't know, I'm not gonna name anything, but, but you can. You're free to name these things. These places where the enemy or narratives in your head are causing you to doubt the truest thing about you. And just bring it to Jesus. So bring it to Jesus during this song. Come forward. For some, you'll just stay in your chair. You'll just stay in your place. And God just wants to meet you right there. For others, there's some some steps you got to take today. Take those steps forward. Receive prayer. And let the Father pour his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit.